Welcome to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. Chris shares don't sweat wisdom to help you achieve greater mental health, self-compassion, and better communication with family, friends, and coworkers. Listen in and learn simple ways to live your most vibrant life of joy. Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. This is Christine Carlson. So before we begin, let's go ahead and take our golden pause. Wherever you are, sit comfortably. And if you're driving, just pay attention to the road and use this as a deep, grounding, breathing exercise. But for the rest of us, let's sit with our legs uncrossed and our hands open on our lap and begin to just breathe with me. And as you breathe, breathe in through your nose. Allow your chest and your belly to fully expand, taking in the fullness of that breath. And as you exhale, let yourself go and relax on that exhale. Even let out a sigh if it's been a long day or it's just the beginning of a new day. Just breathe in through your nose allowing your chest and your belly to expand and exhale, allowing your body to fully relax. This time as you breathe in, breathe in sunlight, pure golden sunlight to every cell of your being, every cell of your body, to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes, throughout your whole body, breathing in golden sunlight. And as you exhale, let go and relax a little bit deeper. This time as you breathe in, breathe in pink love, pure love, filling your whole body with love. And as you exhale, let go of any fear, let go of any tension you feel, any anxiety, And this time as you breathe in, place your hand on your heart, opening your heart, activating your heart, and spend a moment in gratitude for something somebody said to you, some place you visited recently, or just even the simplest moment, the simplest thing of just being present in this moment right here, right now. Just feeling into and breathing into that spacious Yummy feeling of gratitude. And as you breathe in, taking in all that gratitude, the golden sunlight, filling your heart and your mind and your spirit with love, go ahead and exhale and open your eyes. Well, this month's interview is with um, a very interesting woman and a very interesting story. And this book that we're going to be talking about is called This Naked Mind Control Alcohol by Annie Grace. Annie Grace is the author of The Naked Mind Control Alcohol, Find Freedom, Discover Happiness, and Change Your Life. And Annie grew up in a one-room log cabin without running water or electricity outside of Aspen, Colorado. I bet she had a pretty good wood stove, though. 
<laughs> Annie grew up in a one room. Wow. Okay. I already said that a log cabin. I'm still stunned by that. She discovered a passion for marketing. And after graduating with a master's of science, she dove into corporate life. At the age of 26, Annie was the youngest vice president in a multinational company, and her drinking career began in earnest. At 35, in a global C-level marketing role, she was responsible for marketing in 28 countries and drinking almost two bottles of wine a night. Knowing she needed a change but unwilling to submit to a life of deprivation and stigma, Annie set out to find a painless way to regain control. Annie no longer drinks and has never been happier. She left her executive role to write this book and share this naked mind with the world. In her free time, Annie loves to ski, travel, 26 countries and counting, and she enjoys her beautiful family. Annie lives with her husband and three children in the Colorado mountains. But Annie, I, are you in a log cabin with no running water in the Colorado mountains? <laughs> <laughs> not, not currently. My dad not is. Currently. He's still there. Oh, wow. I, yeah. Well, that is something that is very unique to your upbringing. And let's start there. What was that like living in that log cabin? And did you have a really solid, great wood-burning stove? <laughs> we had two. Yes. So we had an Ash, Ashley and a cook stove. And uh, every year, gathering wood was an event that took all of September I to get enough it. wood for the winter. Um, yeah, the cabin was at 10,500 feet, so oh. it was quite high and snowy. <laughs> and how many were your, how many did you grow up with in your family? Um, so it was, it, there was actually uh, me and my brother and my dad in that cabin. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Wow. And was and, and was it? Was it a choice to live that way, to live a more sustainable life? Or what, what was the power behind like that for your dad to choose that for you guys? Yeah, he had such an interesting sort of journey. He basically, he grew up in the Bronx, um, born and raised in a big city, and then went to film school at Denver University. And during the summer after he graduated, he found this cabin and just decided he kind of wanted to throw it all away. So he gave up a pretty promising film career in Manhattan and really fell in love with just the very simple lifestyle of being in this tiny little cabin in the woods and just stayed there ever since. He's been there um, close to 45 years now. So so for 45 years? Yes, and he loves it, absolutely loves it. It's still very quiet out in the middle of the wilderness, and yeah, it's and and then how did how did you feel about it? I mean, and how did you transition into you know leaving that to go on to college and and all of that? I didn't really know any different, so it was interesting because I certainly you know didn't I didn't realize how unique it was. I remember telling people that I would meet like, oh yeah, I'm from this little town. It's it's called Aspen. It's outside of Glen Springs, and I live in the mountains and. People would be like, oh, wow, really? You know, so especially in college, people were quite fascinated with the story. But I had no really benchmark for how unique it was. Um, but I really liked when I got sort of off the mountain, so to speak, and started getting into college. And I was just 
fascinated with um, consumer behavior and marketing, and I really had a passion for that. So it, it launched me in that direction and ended up graduating and ironically um, getting a job in New York City, which is kind of full circle for my dad. He's like, that's why I left to come to the mountains, and then you end up there. So he thought that was pretty funny. Well, but then, um, and you, did you live without television and without like, you didn't have very many modern day conveniences. It didn't sound like, so was that like a huge transition for you to, you know, just become like a modernized person? Oh yes. So yeah, no television. We had a solar panel that powered a few 12 volt lights. Um, and I mean, I did really silly stuff. Like I completely flooded the kitchen in our apartment in college because I didn't know how to use a dishwasher. I didn't realize you couldn't put like dish detergent in the dishwasher, which made sense to me, but it ended up flooding it in four feet bubbles like that, where, you know, things weren't (laughs) I just wasn't used to them, so <laughs> learned learned some of those things the hard way. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Wow. Well, that that's a very interesting, unique part of your story. Um, you know, so you wrote this book, the, this Naked Mind Control Alcohol, and you know, let me just say, first of all, I just want to um, really commend you for your courage to, you know, to write such a book because. You know, of all the drugs that we have in our culture, alcohol is definitely the one that is the most socially acceptable. And yet, it's true that alcohol is just as damaging as all the other drugs that everyone is so afraid of in so many different capacities. But because it's such a socially acceptable norm, you know, we we dismiss the damaging effects of alcohol on our health and on our emotional health and our well-being, and until we have, um, you know, what most people end up with as a, a a monumental problem with alcohol, which, you know, you hear all sorts of different ideas, like what makes you an alcoholic, what doesn't make you an alcoholic, and sort of the socially norm that my friends and the people that I know have adopted is, well, if it doesn't really disrupt your life, then <laughs> then you're not an alcoholic, you know? Yeah. But the truth is, you know, it's alcohol is something that it just becomes such a social way of being. And I, I think you do a beautiful job in your book of describing, you know, some of the ways that we justify, you know, our consumption of alcohol and, and perhaps our overconsumption. I know in my own life that I always said, I really enjoy wine too much to become an alcoholic. <laughs> so <laughs> my point being, I used to tell my kids that I'm like, look, as long as you don't, you know, you, as long as you know that you're, you have time periods where you can stop and it's not such a huge habit and, you know, you have your parameters around alcohol, like you don't binge drink and you don't, you know, they're just different. As long as you do it and really truly do it in, in a moderation, you're probably going to be fine for most of your life. But I mean, here's the thing. It's so easy in the evening to, you know, to start having that glass of wine and then start having two and then start having three and and then if you have company or you're in a social setting it's just easier to it's just easy to keep going because you're right you know you describe the conversation just flows everybody gets louder you know everybody's laughing more you know and and and, and even you go so far as to talk about 
you know, loosening up for sex and, and all of those things. And it's true. Like, you know, if I'm going to go on a date or something, I'm definitely going to drink. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. But you go into the reasons like, well, why, why maybe you should consider not drinking too much and, you know, why not losing your inhibition is actually, you know, it's your inhibition can keep you really safe. And so let's dig into some of these things. Um, let's, let's first of all, ask you your own personal story so that everyone can hear, you know, how you came to this conclusion in your own life. And then, and then we can dig into, you know, just some of the, um, ways that you found that you were able to alter your consumption. And I can share with you definitely some of my own strategic, tactics that way too, living in a culture of, you know, people who definitely enjoy wine. Well, I think what you said was so wise and profound. It's that if you enter in something with a mindful relationship and understanding that there's some inherent danger in drinking, then you can probably, you know, enjoy wine for a much longer period of time, you know, possibly forever without ever having a problem. I think my story really began because I didn't have that mindful relationship. I didn't grow up. My parents didn't drink. My dad didn't drink. And, um, so when I was told basically part of my career, look, you know, I didn't even drink much at the age of 26 when I got this massive job and I was living in Manhattan and I was told I needed to show up more, at kind of the social events and happy hours because that's where the networking happened. That's where the deals were done. And so I took it really seriously. I was very passionate about my job and I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to show up. And, and I actually had a formula. I had a glass of, of wine and then a glass of water. And it wasn't because of any, um, any like mindfulness in terms of health, but it was just simply because I knew that if I did that, I could keep up with these, you know, 30, 40 year old, uh, sort of seasoned drinkers who, who could drink much more than I could. And I wouldn't make such a, like a fool out of myself. So my plan was to just build a tolerance so that I could show up for my job. And I guess if you fast forward a decade, um, alcohol has a way of sneaking up on you. It's certainly tolerance really just does build over time. What used to be a little bit, uh, to get one effect ends up needing to be a lot more alcohol to get the same effect. And so I reached a point in my life where, I had two young children and I was giving them sort of, you know, the exhausted leftovers. Yeah. And I just felt very convicted about that. And I wanted to make a change. But it was funny when I stopped drinking, I had a lot of people, especially coworkers, who I drank with the most saying things like, Oh, I never even saw you drunk. And I think that just goes to show like if you can get mindful about it at a certain stage, you don't necessarily have to, you know, not only do you not have to quit, but you don't have to hit a rock bottom. Yeah, but I love what you said, you know, about it sounds to me like, you know, you decided to make a personal choice because you were aware and you realized that you weren't able to show up for your children the way you really wanted to. And you realized that the alcohol was playing a role in that. And I think, you know, that speaks to a very deep level of awareness and that, you know, we hope that our listeners are listening to that because, you know, a lot of times we think like we're not feeling well, or we have depression, or we have emotional things going on. But if we really looked into our body first, and we checked back around to our body, and we asked our body, like, what, what is a, what's going on with my body right now? Like, what, what part of that might be playing such a huge role in my emotional well-being? And oftentimes, 
the answer really is in your body because it's all connected. And I loved, I, I love that you realized that you weren't giving your kids, you know, all that you could give them and that, you know, because alcohol does, there's a way in which it just over time can add to your feelings of depression because it is a depressant and it's what it does to your blood sugar. And you go into your book and you talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned about nutrition and the damaging effects of alcohol to one's health? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, you're exactly right. It, it took kind of a, a level of awareness of not wanting a certain thing in my own life but then also finding it at that point being sort of difficult to cut back because I had such an emotional attachment. I believed it did make me a better networker, more creative, you know, more successful. And so to cut back and, and I thought it helped me relax. I thought it helped me show up better for my kids. Um, and then when I realized it wasn't, it was a really tangled knot to untie to understand what was really going on. But certainly, you know, nutritionally and especially for kind of relaxing and stress, Alcohol is a depressant, but it's a funny thing because it's a stimulant and a depressant both at once. So you have the funny effect of when you have that first drink, your blood alcohol rises, and it rises for about 30 minutes, and you get those nice euphoric feelings. Yeah. But then it drops for two to three hours from that same drink, and that's where the depressant kicks in, and that's your body actually re releases adrenaline and cortisol, and you feel uneasy and fatigued and tired and uncomfortable in your own skin. So often we have another drink to kind of diminish that uncomfortable feeling, and then most of that uncomfortable feeling happens overnight because we drink in the evenings. So it's not so apparent that we're sort of trading that half an hour of kind of stimulant effect of alcohol for two to three hours of the more depressant effect from alcohol. And then, like you say, it accumulates over time. So um, over time, you actually, and studies have shown, you know, physiological research that drinking daily over a long period of time makes you less able to deal with stressors in life. You just feel less prepared. Your heart beats faster. You know, you have additional stress hormones in your body um, because you've been depleting yourself. And it, it really depletes you on a very cellular level, not only from a dehydration perspective, but just the, the roller coaster of blood sugar of going, you know, it's purely uh, carbohydrates and sugar as alcohol is it, it burns so quickly. And so you go up and down and up and down and you end up really depleting yourself. And also it, it can make you feel full. You know, people say <laughs> there was a beer slogan that was like less filling calories. <laughs> right. And so you don't. You don't get the calories from the food and the nutrients that you need. There's actually a thing, it's called drunkorexia, and it's where women are so thin and drinking so much that most of their calories are coming from alcohol, but they're not actually getting the nutrition that they need. Yeah, and that's just, that's overall really dangerous for your for your health. I know, um, I know my dad, um, my dad, like, used to be in sales when we were little, and was drinking an awful lot. And, and I know he felt the same way you did. He just realized like he, he didn't like who he was when he was under the influence of alcohol. And, and he basically just cold turkey, just said, that's it. I'm not drinking and didn't drink, has never had a drink in like 60 years. I mean, 70 years wow. now. So, um, he just stopped and he never, ever, ever drank again. And it was just that kind of like, you know, it was just that insight. And he was just like, well, nope, that's it. I'm not ever drinking again. Um, and I, I think 
what, so when you decided, did you, do you kind of created, it sounds like your own kind of rehabilitation. Is that right? Like you really decided to dive in to understanding, um, and, and sort of did a lot of research. Is that right? Yeah, at this moment where I realized that the sense of deprivation, it didn't used to exist. Like I went through my entire college career barely drinking and I had a great time and dealt with things like finals and stress. So I just started really questioning why is it that now I feel a sense of deprivation? I I could set limits. I could stop drinking. I could take breaks um, without any problem physically, but emotionally it was rough. And so I just started exploring that question. And I made a list of every single reason I drank. I actually did a survey and got other people's reasons they drank and just very methodically started going through every single reason and asking myself, okay, is this really true, um, both internally and then what does the research say? And through that process, it was almost as if, uh, you know, it was a reset emotionally. Um, When you're pouring a glass of wine because you are stressed out and you need it to relax, that's a very real feeling. It's a very real belief. But as soon as you do the research and you realize, oh gosh, this glass of wine is going to give me 30 minutes in exchange for two to three hours of kind of feeling worse. Um, you don't have the desire to pour that wine to relax. You have the desire to maybe put on your running shoes or get a cup of chamomile tea or something like that because the desire lets go. And that's what makes it so freeing is that it's a very emotional thing, you know, Whereas if you try to just white knuckle something, when you're giving up something you desire or something you want, it's emotionally very hard. It depletes your willpower. And then you end up snapping at your kids or getting frustrated with your husband. You end up being very drunk, like grumpy. They have a term for this in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called dry drunk, where you're just a miserable person to be around. That's how I understand it. And, um, but you're sober. (laughs) And so I didn't want, I didn't want that. I didn't want to be kind of miserable and sober. I just wanted to be back to that point in my life where I didn't need alcohol to relax or have a good time. And, and I just really had to unwind all the stories that, and all the beliefs and all the conditioning from all sorts of places, from coworkers, from media, from parents, from friends. And through that process, which it really is a process, which I take the reader through in the book. Um, it did, it really let go of me. It's just been phenomenal. Yeah, what I love about that is that, you know, like all the latest research on happiness really shows that happiness is a choice and so is everything else. And I think, you know, what I understand that you did, which makes a lot of sense to me, is you took your power back through knowledge, through understanding, through a deeper awareness of of what were the effects and, and you made your choice really easy for yourself, really clear. And I think that in and of itself is a great template for healing for people and and to listen to that, you know, that there's lot, lots of different solutions to the same problem, but look at what Annie did. You know, she she decided that she wanted to know and, and wanted to, she created her own reasons really, like, didn't she? Like your own set of reasons for wanting to quit and for sticking with it, which is very powerful because... You know, a lot of times you you watch people um, who get health news, for example, and, you know, our whole lives we we go about living our lives and we all have habits, both positive and negative habits, and, and, and we sort of know the things we're supposed to do and not do, but many of us, myself included, still do them anyways, you know, still will eat things or do things that we know wouldn't necessarily be in our highest interest to do. 
But until we get that phone call or that news, we often don't make a big change. We won't change it because of what you're talking about, because inherently there's something that we've decided is in it for us, more in it for us to do it than to not do it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I love that you you actually took your own power in your own hands and and you figured out like what, what it would take for you to choose not to do it. You know, and I I think that's great because it, it backs up the whole notion that you already knew it wasn't good for you. You know, you already were aware that you weren't giving your kids exactly what you wanted to give them, that you were tired, you know, that you didn't you didn't feel like yourself. And but then to go ahead and, you know, give yourself the why, you know, because when we know why we're doing something, when we're really, really clear on why it is we're doing something, then we're much likely to stick to doing it with a lot more diligence and tenacity and strength. And, and I think that's just, um, that's really powerful the way that you went about this. Um, what else was I going to ask you? What else would you like to share with our listeners? I, I just feel like this is, I know my assistant Carol won't mind me telling you that she and her husband, um, they didn't have an alcohol problem or anything, but they just decided you know, um, they were, they're facing a time in life where they might have health issues and they just decided that the healthier way to live would be to not drink so much wine every night. So they basically, you know, just stopped drinking, um, alcohol and Carol started reading this book and she was like, gosh, Chris, this is really good. This book is really helping me just stick to what I already feel is the, is the most powerful choice for me. And, so I, I just want to thank you, you know, for writing this book because it, it, it's, it's, um, a really strong promise and it's something that more and more people need to read. I know in my own doctor's office, we have to fill out a survey, um, questionnaire for my doctor and, and my physical. And she said a long time ago, it was okay to have like four to seven drinks a week. And now they've cut that down to saying, if you're drinking more than three to four glasses of alcohol a week, it's too much for your health. And so I just want everyone to really take that in, you know, that is something that I've been thinking an awful lot about in my own health and, you know, and just thinking about how optimal health and longevity is something that you have to work on long before you get there because once you get to the place where you might not have it, it's too late. And so you really want to think about, you know, how much alcohol you're consuming on a daily basis and be real about it and, and really take a look at, you know, what's in it for you. You know, what do you really want? Like what's, what's your why and what, what, what do you want for your future? Because we do have to, think about our future health as if it's our present health. Otherwise, like I just said, it's, it's too late. If you wait, you're, you're making decisions now that impact your health later. And this is something that, um, that I've thought a lot about. And one of the things that I do personally every year, and actually every, about every month or two, I do a, a good cleanse, like where, and not only remove like all the dairy and the gluten and all the stuff that, you know, interferes with my gut health, but I also take out, you know, sugar and alcohol. And I do this for a number of reasons, you know, because in some level, like it kind of balances out 
Um, you know, some other things, some other times when I drink, you know, more alcohol, although lately more and more, I'm just choosing sparkling water because I like the way it feels, you know, like I'll put a lemon in it. And even when I'm out with friends, I'll just get a sparkling water with lemon in it. And I certainly do that at home. Um, I do notice for myself personally, I'm much more of a social drinker. I'm not an alone drinker. Like I will almost never sit down and open a bottle of wine on my own or drink a drink on my own. And that there is a rare occasion where I'll decide to, but, um, but not very often. Mostly I've noticed that, you know, alcohol is a social thing for me. So, you know, but I, I love what you say, um, you know, in your book, Annie, that you're not telling everybody that they have to give it up, you know, you're just saying, you know, be mindful about it, you know, be mindful, take a mindful approach to it. And you really show how somebody can um, decide and choose not to drink so much. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love your approach, actually, because that's, that's exactly right. Just being conscious of, you know, sometimes, and especially when we start to drink for stress, we feel like it's more of a, a crutch. And so it can get a free pass. So I've talked to so many people and women in specific who would do things like the cleanse you're talking about, but they wouldn't give up the alcohol. And it would be sort of this thing that they turned a blind eye to this one thing because they felt like it was it was so empowering to them or they had um, such a need for it emotionally. And I think your point about change was also really good because honestly, change comes when one of two things happens. Either the the new alternative looks more attractive or the current situation holds so much pain. And I would so much rather us be having the conversation where the new alternative is looking attractive than the current situation is holding pain because that often facilitates these horrific experiences where you are dealing with a health crisis or you're dealing with, you know, I've heard DUIs or losing kids or all sorts of things that come from alcohol. Whereas this, this idea of, you know, you drinking a sparkling water with some lemon, that's an attractive thing. I like how I feel, you know, really looking at what you stand to gain from a break and going into it with this experimental mindset of, I'm just going to see how it feels and, and what things go on rather than going into often people will take breaks if, if they do at all. And they'll go into it with this. I'm just going to get through it. I'm just going to prove to myself I don't have a problem. But they, in effect, make alcohol more important because they've been basically on an alcohol diet where they've been depriving themselves. So everything you said just makes so much sense. Well, I think, like, um, you know, for me, it's about three days, you know, if I'm in a really, like, if whenever I've been in a real habit of drinking, like, uh, you know, it's usually about three days. And it's, like, getting past, like, that 5 o'clock hour. And it's, like... And then on the third, fourth, fifth day, I'm like, I don't even care anymore. You know, (laughs) I mean, in, in my, in my cleanses, giving up probably my cheese is probably the hardest thing I do. Right. (laughs) But, you know, again, that's another practice, you know, and, and it's a practice of realizing that yes, everything you give up, whether it's sugar, you know, anything you love, it's going to take, it's going to take some time to you know, get past those feelings of, wow, I really want that, you know? And, and, um, but I, I, again, I just want everyone to pick up this book, um, this naked mind control alcohol by Annie Grace, because it'll give you a really strong why and, but it's not going to beat you over the head 
either. And I love your whole approach is very friendly. It's a very friendly voice. Um, it's, it's very raw and real and very sharing and revealing. And I think those kinds of stories are the most impactful. So Annie, can you tell us where to find you on your website or anything else you'd like to close this podcast by sharing? Well, it's just been such a pleasure. I just really appreciate you having me. Um, my website is thisnakedmind.com. And then I also have a completely free alcoholexperiment.com where you can go and just take a 30-day mindful break. And every day I have like a video and um, that, that comes out. So if anybody just wanted to do a bit of a challenge nice. and 30 days of education, um, yeah, alcoholexperiment.com. Oh, I love that. That's great. Alcoholexperiment.com. Annie, just thank you so much. Um, loved our conversation. I think it's a great conversation to have in January at the new year after all the holidays are over and people are gung-ho for getting healthy again. And just thank you for the courage that you have to share your story and for bringing this beautiful book forward to help other people. It's, it's really powerful. And, and I'm still like, just my jaw's still dropping that you grew up in a log cabin without running water. I think that's so cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christine. It's been All a right. pleasure. Okay. Thanks. Happy new year. Thanks for listening to don't sweat the small stuff, live the big stuff. Be sure to visit christinecarlson.com where you can find information about Christine's powerful what now course retreats and blog all designed to bring you simple ways to inspire you to live your life with joy. That's christinecarlson.com.